Thank you for tuning in to the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is an online ministry striving to feed people the life-sustaining bread of God's Word. Bread of the Word exists for the reclamation of the Bible in the heart, mind, and walk of all the saints of God, for it is the Bible itself which is the ultimate standard by which people are to live and honor God. Thank you for tuning in. This is Bread of the Word. to yet another episode of the Bread of the Word podcast, where we go verse by verse through the Bible and pull out the good stuff as we go. We, we've been going through Ecclesiastes uh, verse by verse, and we were in chapter 5. And so we'll be taking a break from that this week. Um, every now and then I try to get out of the series and um, go through a piece of poetry and get very practical, very down to earth. And so this week we'll be covering... Psalm 63, verses 1 and 2. Very small chunk, but there's a lot of good stuff in here that I want to give appropriate time to. It's very practical. It's been very practical for me this week. And I'm looking forward to sharing with you some of what God has shown me in these two verses. And so without further ado, uh, the text today says, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you. In a land that is dry desolate and without water so I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory so taking a break from Ecclesiastes this way getting a little more casual a little more um, practical than we've been now, of course it's always practical but here it's a little more intentional because we're reading poetry we're reading not just that we're reading devotional poetry um, Ecclesiastes is wisdom poetry in its own way but Psalms, it's a prayer. And we direct our eyes to this prayer that David prayed while in the desert. Traditionally, this psalm is known as the desert of Judah. The subscript of the psalm says, A psalm of David <clears throat> when he was in the desert of Judah, or Judah as we uh, transliterate that in English. And the, the Psalter, the book, Huck of Psalms, is constructed of passages that are one part song of praise and one part prayer. And to grasp this text as intended, we have to recognize that it is both musical and poetic in perfect harmony. Um, George Herbert once wrote that prayer is the soul in paraphrase. And which soul is in paraphrase here? The Psalm of David, when he was in the desert of Judah. When Robert, when David, sorry, wrote this debatable, when he wrote this is debatable. Some say he was hiding from Saul. Others say he was hiding from Absalom. Um, but nonetheless, David was in hiding in the desert and prayed the psalm. And it's worth establishing that what makes this psalm a psalm is not the human author. We do not have this in the Psalter because of the moral qualifications of David, quite actually the opposite. Um, David in his life 
was a scoundrel. He was a vile sinner just like the rest of us. His prayer is recorded in the book we call the Psalms because of the God who led him to write these words. Um, Second Peter chapter 1 says, Above all, know this. No prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Revelation 22, 6 <clears throat> says, Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And so when we look at the psalm, it should be clear that the psalm is not reason to elevate David, but to elevate God, because ultimately God wrote the psalm through David. <clears throat> and so David is not the hero in this story. He may have been the human that wrote it, but the focus is not David. And so when we look at this, that's, that's the backdrop here. Now we consider the first stanza. Oh God, you are my God. And I thirst for you. My body faints for you. In a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. David expresses a longing for God. His God. Oh God, you are my God. And building off that setting, off the setting of this prayer, the psalm utilizes the desert poetically. <clears throat> um, in the view of the desert in the um, beginnings of the church, um, they held the, the d desert in a very particular um, view. They saw the desert as a sort of spiritual battleground where spiritual wars were waged. Jesus, the God-man, was tempted in the desert. Many in the early church went into the desert to pray and to fight those same spiritual battles. Why? Because there was something about the desert that was somewhat allegorical. It was a spiritual representation of something... It was a physical representation of something spiritual. One author comments on this. Men who were tired of the world, <clears throat> or who had experienced great disappointments or who wished to impress their views and ideas concerning spiritual matters on their fellow men, forsook the habitations of men and retired into mountains and deserts, where they fasted, prayed, kept vigils, and meditated, and sometimes devoted their lives to ministering to the wants, both material and spiritual, of the poor and needy. And so this is how the early church looked at the desert. But we've got to look at, and some of that... I think can carry over but there's a deeper meaning to the desert here that David is illustrating that God is um, using David to paint <clears throat> what is what is the painting here and it starts with oh God you are my God that relates directly to these other other lines here I seek you eagerly <clears throat> my I, my body faints for you in a land that is dry desolate and without water and which God does David thirst for? Elohim Ata Ani Eli. God, you are my God. And he pluralizes it for emphasis in the beginning. And then singularizes it at the end. Similar to what we see in Exodus 3. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Titles are important in the Hebrew scriptures. 
Elohim is used elsewhere like boss. It's a little more generic. But the Pharaoh, for example, was an El. He was a kind of Elohim. The use of Elohim, though, is plural. But it doesn't imply that Yahweh is one of many. But that extra intensity, that added intensity, is applied to the person of God. David then makes it singular and personal by calling him Ani Eli, my God, my El. Hagar once spoke of El as the God who sees me, like a God who is personal. He is in the details. And unlike the proposed gods of Egypt, he can be known. Exodus 7, Pharaoh will not listen to you, but I will put my hand into Egypt and bring the military divisions of my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. And then we skip down to chapter 16, <clears throat> verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, This evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the Lord's glory, because he has heard your complaints from him about him. For who are we that you complain about us? Moses continued, The Lord will give you meats to eat this evening and all the bread you want in the morning, for he has heard the complaints that are rising against him. Who are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. So the pattern of Exodus is framed around so that blank will know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh. Of course, that's not, and then he reveals to Abraham, that's something that was unique in Moses onwards. They didn't, Abraham did not know him as Yahweh, but knew him as Elohim, as El Shaddai, as some of these names, but he did not know him as Yahweh. That is something unique that God revealed beginning with Moses. And a common thread through much of the Old Testament Moses on is the phrase, so that blank will know that I am Yahweh, that I am the Lord. And this is said about Egypt for many chapters. But Israel is not told anything like that phrase until they leave Egypt. And where are they? They're in the desert. The Israelites knew the Lord in the desert when he gave them manna from heaven. But the Egyptians knew that he is the Lord because of the plagues. In the midst of the desert, we have a God who sees us, who knows us, and will provide for us physically and spiritually. Hebrews 3 says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, 
as a testimony to what we would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are that household if we hold on to our confidence and the hope in which we boast. And on that, John Owen comments, We are so to know Christ as to live in him, live to him in the strength of his grace and unto the praises of his glory. And so Hebrews brings some questions into the fray. Hebrews is a fantastic book. Um, definitely encourage reading that book for all it's worth. But one of the issues being fleshed out in Hebrews is the relation between Jesus in the New Testament and the Old Testament as a whole. Is, um, are the sacrifices sufficient? Are the feasts enough? Is this how we honor God? Or is there something new? Is there something, there's, is there a fuller meaning that we're missing here? And this is fleshed out very directly in Hebrews. And we'll be referring to Hebrews a little bit down the way as, as well. But the question that's posed by this, this section here is, consider Christ, who is worth more honor than Moses because of the household he's building us into. And the question is, do we desire this God? Do we desire this Christ, this household that he has built? Can we pray, God, you are my God? Can we pray, I eagerly seek you, I thirst for you, my body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water? Or have our hearts, like Pharaoh, become hardened to the person of God and our dependence on him for life itself. Nebuchadnezzar did not recognize this, and God made himself known to him. Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you, and you will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals, and you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time, until you acknowledge, what? That the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, and he gives them to anyone he wants, so that all the nations will know. So that blank will know, I am Yahweh. Towards the end of chapter 4, but at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, and my sanity returned. Then I praised the Most High, and honored and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does what he wants with the army of heaven, and the inhabitants of the earth. And there is no one who can block his hand, or say to him, What have you done? At that time my sanity returned to me, and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom, and even more greatness came to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of the heavens, because all his works are true, and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. So, if we're to long for God, as the psalmist did. To what end ought we direct our longing? What is what is the goal? What is the 
the focal point here. Verse 2, So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. Is that our longing? Is that my longing? Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. In the midst of our desert, let us seek the Lord who can be found. For the God of the garden is also the God of the desert. And God is sovereignly ordering our lives, even in the desert. Consider this passage from Hebrews chapter 12. It says in verse 3, Yes, think about him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners, so that you won't grow tired or become despondent. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in the contest against sin. Also, you have forgotten the counsel which speaks with you as sons. My son, don't despise the discipline of Adonai, or become despondent when he corrects you, for Adonai disciplines those he loves and whips everyone he accepts as a son. Regard your endurance as a discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son goes undisciplined by his father? All legitimate sons undergo discipline. So if you don't, you're an illegitimate son and not a true son. Furthermore, we had physical fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. How much more should we submit to our spiritual father and live? For they disciplined us only for a short time and only as best they could. But he disciplines us in a way that provides genuine benefit to us and enables us to share in his holiness. Now all discipline, while it is happening, does indeed seem painful, not enjoyable. But for those who have been trained by it, it later produces its peaceful fruit, which is righteousness. So strengthen your drooping arms and steady your tottering knees and make a level path for your feet so that what has been injured will not get wrenched out of joint, but rather will be healed. And that was out of a translation that was done by a Jewish rabbi who was convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that he is a Jewish rabbi who has trusted in Christ. And this is a translation he put together. I'll call it complete Jewish Bible, but it, it gets the point across. Um, what is... And I think the verse that jumps out the most, um, it has more bite in the King James, I think. If ye endure chastening, God deal dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? And that, that old English just seems to bite with me. But he chastens every son that he receives. And just keep in mind that when David is in the desert, that is not something outside the, the ordinance, ordinance of God. That's not something that was outside of the foreordination of God. God ordained the desert. God spoke that desert into being. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And part of the earth was that desert. And... When God made the desert, he was fully aware of what was going to happen in that desert. Part of his plan for the world included David going to that desert and hiding and writing the psalm. 
and he would illustrate this relationship to his people with deserts time and time again, with the manna and with snakes and with all of this stuff, to the point that John Donne, poet in the 1500s, I think, once wrote in a sermon that the Psalms are the manna of the church. This is our daily sustenance. This is, this is food. This is nourishment for my soul. That comes straight from the hand of God. And this is a hard text. He chastens every son he receives, but he deals with us as sons. There's so much goodness packed into that. I don't have time. That he deals with me as his son. When I'm not his son. By birth. But by the grace of God, I have been made his son. I have been brought into the family of God, not by my merits, but by the merits of Christ, I am adopted. John Owen quotes um, comments on this, on this concept of chastening. And he says, Now the meaning is not that hereupon on the performance of this duty, when you have so done, God will act towards you as sons. For this he doth in all their chastisements themselves, as the apostle proves. But rather, here's, here's the meaning of the verse, he says, Hereby it will evidently appear, even unto yourselves, that God deals with you. You shall be able, in all of them, to see in him the discipline and acting of a father towards his sons. At wit, as such, he will present himself unto you. And so what's being illustrated in Hebrews is not the chastisement of God being a reward for our faithfulness or something that we initiate, but rather, God chastises all his children for their good because he is good. This is something that we automatically come into. It's not because we're special. It's because we're his. And we, as his children, will be cognizant of that, but we are not the initiators of it. So then, when we encounter difficulty and deserts, this is the outlook we have, which begs the question, in the desert, in the in the stink, when I am playing the blues on my wooden harmonica, do I see God at work? Do I yearn for more of him in the desert? Or do I focus on my desire for life to be easier? Somebody uh, told me once that the Christian life should be easy peasy lemon squeezy, but actually it is difficult, difficult lemon difficult. Um, just look at the preceding passage here in, in the beginning of Hebrews 12. So then, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, witnesses to what? Witnesses to Christ, to all that he has accomplished. So, so then, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us too put aside every impediment, that is, the sin which easily hampers our forward movement, and keep running with endurance in the contest set before us, Looking away to the initiator and completer of that trusting, of that faith, Christ, Jesus, who in exchange for obtaining the joy set before him, endured execution on a stake, on a cross, as a criminal, scorning the shame, and, was, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Yes, think about him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners, so that you won't grow tired or become despondent. You have not resisted to the point of shedding 
blood in the contest with sin, and you have forgotten the counsel which speaks with you as sons. My son, do, don't despise the discipline of Adonai, or become despondent when he corrects you, for Adonai disciplines those he loves, and whips everyone he accepts as a son. And that is a direct quotation from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. And we will close the same way we began. When things get hard, we sing to God. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Life is hard without Jesus. Life is hard with Jesus. So it's not a matter of choosing between easy and hard. Life is hard. That is part of the curse. The, curse is, the ground is cursed because of sin. By the sweater of your brow you shall eat bread. And to dust you shall return, for from dust you came. So life is hard with Jesus, and life is hard without Jesus. Choose your heart. We can suffer now, and suffer later, dying the second death on the day of the Lord. Or we can suffer with as people who have hope. We can plow in hope, knowing that things will get better. That things will um, find their truest meaning where ultimately what i'm enduring is for my good it is to make me more like christ and in the desert sometimes it takes a desert for me to truly yearn for god sometimes we don't realize our need for god until we are deprived of our um, comforts when we are staring our unreliability straight in the face G.K. Chesterton once noted that the people that believe in themselves the most are all locked up. They're all in insane asylums. The people that believe in themselves the most are crazy. But the, because why would you trust solely in yourself? People, there was a time, he said, when people questioned themselves and had more assurance in things outside them. God is the thing we trust more than ourselves. Because when my mind fails, when my wallet fails, when my fill-in-the-blank fails, God is still there. And so then since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses to that, let us too put aside every impediment, the sin that easily hampers our forward movement, and keep running with endurance the contest set before us. And pray this this psalm. Make this prayer to God. Make this your prayer to God. And may we all be further conformed to what God is doing in and around and through us. God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you. In a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. So I gaze on you in your sanctuary to see your strength. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Bread of the Word podcast. I pray that it has been beneficial to your walk with God and that he has called you into a deeper relationship and fellowship with himself. If you want to hear more from Bread of the Word, feel free to hit that subscribe button down at the bottom. Get notified about new content whenever we go live. 
Um, you can also watch us on Rumble Video and YouTube, or you can listen on your favorite podcast platforms. Um, you can also find us on social media if you want to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Gab. Links will be provided in the bio um, if you would like to check those out. And there will also be a message in the comment section, um, a free gospel message for download entitled The Two J's, The Joy of the Potter and the Journey of the Clay. That is something that I've written, that is something God laid on me to write and then send out. And so I'm not making anything off of it. I'm not selling it. It is free for you to read and share. We need a further saturation of the gospel in our world, in our culture. And it starts right here. Bread of the Word Ministries exists for the reclamation of the Bible and the exaltation of Christ through the reading and teaching of His holy transformative word. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. God bless. Matthew 4.4.